Hi, everybody. I am uh, Tony Ganser from 90.3 WCPN. Uh, like Stephanie said, your questions are a vital part of this event, uh, and it's kind of the best part for me. I enjoy hearing what you guys thought and if we missed something. So I really do encourage you to be thinking while we're talking and uh, to come up when, uh, when we're at that point of the event. Uh, first of all, though, uh, Josh, could you just introduce yourself a little bit and, and talk about your experience uh, with national security? and terrorism. Sure, and, and thank you for the opportunity to, to be here. Delighted to be with you and with, with all of you th this evening. Uh, I had the opportunity to work on counterterrorism issues and national security issues in government from a few different vantage points. I was at the Justice Department in the National Security Division where I worked on some intelligence collection issues, counterterrorism issues, and then I was uh, on loan to the National Security Council at the White House, first as Deputy Legal Advisor there and then Senior Director for Counterterrorism. So the first question is a very broad question, and answer it however you like, but what is the war on terror nowadays? Because at, at one point, especially after 9-11, there was a certain definition of it, but where are we now? Can you kind of give us a snapshot? It, it's a good question, and it's, and it's a hard question, but I, I do think it helps to break down a phrase like war on terrorism into something that's focused on particular threats. That's how we in government thought about it. We thought about particular threats. Now, 9-11 awoke this country to one particular threat, the threat posed by al-Qaeda, and in particular, the threat posed by al-Qaeda and the safe haven that it had enjoyed before 9-11 in Afghanistan. But, and I think rightly, folks quickly realized that was not the only incarnation of that basic threat. There was al-Qaeda elsewhere perhaps most notably AQAP uh, in Yemen, that's Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. There were Al-Qaeda affiliates in other parts of the world, like Somalia and East Africa. And then as the Al-Qaeda landscape was still shifting, very much still there, we have ISIS. And ISIS rises from the ashes of an Al-Qaeda affiliate, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, it pushes through Syria into uh, Iraq and ultimately at one point uh, controls territory roughly the size of, of Great Britain, which is an astonishing thing. Now, these threats have been in, in significant part addressed by persistent, at times costly, counterterrorism activity. You have the leadership of al-Qaeda largely pushed out of that Afghan safe hold that it once enjoyed. To the extent it's still in the AFPAC region, it's largely spending its time just trying to survive. But you have al-Qaeda popping up elsewhere, including in, in Syria right now, where it's consolidating some control in a part of the country called Idlib province. You have ISIS now shrunk to what the government says is about 99.5% of its territory lost. It's holding on to just a tiny piece of the territory it once held. At the same time, the government says tens of thousands of fighters have, in a sense, become a terrorist network, if not a territorial holding quasi-state. So the threats have ebbed and flowed. That's in part because of, I think, some very solid counterterrorism work by not just the United States, but by lots of countries around the world. But it, it, it seems to me it's easier to understand these things when you zoom in on them like that versus panning back. Because it's not just one amorphous threat or un amorphous set of activities since 9-11 it's been different threats cropping up and different responses. We're going to focus a lot on the Middle East, I think, uh, rightfully in this conversation. So if we can kind of move 
east to west and, and try to take these uh, conflicts and, and situations one by one. I'd like to start in Afghanistan because really that was one of the first entrees for the war on terror after 9-11, as, as you mentioned, the Taliban offering safe haven to al-Qaeda. Um, Ryan Crocker, uh, recently former ambassador to the region, wrote in the Washington Post, he also said here at a CCWA event that us moving out, the U.S. moving out of Afghanistan is, is kind of like a surrender in that fight. And I wonder if you could first respond to that idea. What do you think about us moving out of Afghanistan and, and having peace talks with the Taliban now? So let me start with why are we there in the first place? Because it's been so many years, it's America's longest war, that I find it helpful to get back to that, that notion and trying to think through an, an answer to that question. We're there in the first place because we realized that safe haven, even that far away for a terrorist group, could mean threats and danger to Americans at home and abroad, but very much including in the homeland, as we learned on 9-11. Now, that's not where the objectives ended. And this, I think, is part of the difficulty of this almost two-decade-long saga. The, the objectives then became broader than that. They became stability, governance throughout the country, perhaps certain forms of, of rights being implemented throughout the country. Those are very difficult things. In fact, even where I began, just taking a group's safe haven away from it, that's hard enough. So we've seen not just an ebb and flow of the conflict, but an ebb and flow of what the conflict is even being fought to accomplish. To my mind, the, the original core remains a truth, that even in a world where encrypted apps and radicalization online means that territory isn't everything, it's still something. And if it's still something, that means we need to have a plan for how we ensure that that safe haven doesn't return. These negotiations, I think, are an attempt to have that plan, but to have that plan not in just another year or decade of an American presence there of the type we've had for so long, but of a different form. And what's hard to know, especially from the outside, but probably for our, our, and our American negotiators who are in the thick of it, is whether, in fact, they're leaving behind something that will deprive al-Qaeda and an affiliate of ISIS called ISIS-K of safe haven in Afghanistan. When the Taliban says that it will work to ensure that Afghanistan doesn't revert to being a safe haven for terrorists, can we take them at their word? In general, taking the Taliban at its word has not been uh, something most folks believed in, and they've validated that time and again, the Taliban. But uh, our negotiators are presumably working from deep assessments of the interests of the parties with whom they're negotiating, of intelligence professionals here trying to assess what the other side is thinking, and it's very hard to know that from the outside. But that, I think, is, is the core question. Can we have, between the Afghan government and the Taliban, a party or parties that we think are committed to and have the ability to ensure that territory doesn't creep back into terrorist control? And I'm not sure if you have thoughts on this, but Osama bin Laden was found in Pakistan. And I wonder if you can talk about that relationship, especially in the federally administrated areas of Pakistan, which is kind of this lawless region where you know, tribal groups and criminals are operating openly. Is that still part of our, our focus with counterterrorism? You know, I, I think it's part. And of course, bin Laden's deputy, Ayman al-Zawahiri, has not uh, been located every so often. A, a video emerges from him uh, that, that indicates he is still alive and hiding out, presumably, somewhere in, in that region. So as long as the, the group's core has some sort of claim 
to that region, that will resonate with some of the people Al-Qaeda tries to radicalize and recruit and ultimately incite to violence worldwide. But when I think about the, the center of gravity for Al-Qaeda, I don't think about AFPAC anymore. I actually think about Syria because the presence that the awful conflict in Syria has allowed Al-Qaeda to accumulate in, uh, in that country is significant and, and it's worrisome. Now, the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria has had a on-again, off-again relationship with Al-Qaeda core. Put that aside, ultimately it is Al-Qaeda's incarnation in Syria. And some of the key members of Al-Qaeda's core, some of those legacy members from a decade, decade and a half, and a decade and a half ago, have actually moved themselves to Syria. So that's not to forget AFPAC, but for me, when I think about what is that center of gravity for the global network that Al-Qaeda remains and hopes ultimately to, to become an even stronger form, I actually think about Syria at this point. So moving west into Iraq and, and into Syria a bit, I'd like to read something um, uh, from the news today. This is in uh, Stars and Stripes. It was picked up all over the place. Uh, but Army General Joseph Vodal, uh, commander of the U.S. Central Command, told the Senate uh, panel that uh, the Islamic State, so-called Islamic State, will be defeated in Syria and the terrorist group will not be capable of a resurgence after U.S. troops leave the country. He said that to the Senate. What do you think of that, first of all? Do you think that uh, ISIS would not be able to have a resurgence if we left right now, left it as it is? General Votel has been uh, incredible in serving this country and incredible in his role in, in dealing with, with the terrorist threat. And he speaks from far more knowledge and, and, and a far more current intel assessment than I do. But I worry about how America is approaching this threat. Uh, when, when President Trump announced that he was going to withdraw Americans from Syria, and in particular, withdraw them abruptly, without a chance to figure out what came next, how our partners could continue to, to carry out the, the campaign we've waged over the course of two administrations quite steadfastly, that, that worries me. And I have not yet seen answers as to what takes the place of that presence, because that presence is not just about carrying out what those particular folks on the ground were able to do. It's about enabling partnerships. It's about enabling American airstrikes. It's about ensuring that we understand and have insight into what threats may be materializing in the country. There may well be ways from over the border in countries like uh, Iraq or elsewhere to maintain a presence that can be something of a rapid reaction force that can engage in the type of raids into Syria that on rare occasions U.S. forces from outside the country have mounted. But those are hard, those are dangerous, and those ultimately depend on intelligence that it's even harder to have without a presence in the country. So I do worry that withdrawing now, withdrawing when our own government assesses tens of thousands of ISIS fighters remain, and withdrawing so abruptly in particular, that that does not bode well when we, when we want this problem not to reemerge. And the same piece makes reference to a government watchdog report that said ISIS could resurge in six to 12 months if there wasn't a sustained counterterrorism initiative. Um, when I think of Syria, I just think of a mess because there are so many actors in Syria right now that a, a bloody civil war that has lasted for years has now become kind of a battleground for proxies all over the place. Um, can you give us kind of an overview of what we know right now and, and 
yeah, just what is going on and, and what is the threat coming out of Syria? Yeah, and, and, and I think you're exactly right. Syria has become all at once a humanitarian disaster of the highest order, a civil war, multi-sided civil war, a proxy war with powers contesting and jostling for it, and of course a source of terrorist threats, threats that ultimately reached more directly into Europe and indirectly, but by inspiring and radicalizing people, even into the United States. And there was never going to be an easy solution to those four overlapping, interconnecting problems. But maintaining a presence there at least gave us some leverage in each. It gave us the, the kind of skin in the game that made people listen to us and allowed us to at least try to point things in directions we thought were, were, would be more beneficial to US interests. What we see potentially materializing, looming, if we get out and if we get out as, as abruptly as President Trump seems to indicate he wants to get out, is the unleashing of a Turkish-Kurdish conflict that has been simmering but hasn't fully exploded in a way it could. The Israelis have begun to acknowledge their own activities against actors they worry about inside the country. That has regional potential to explode. Iran has had a, a, a documented role in this conflict as it has continued, so that's unlikely to disappear. Russia, of course, got involved quite deliberately because it wants a hand in the future of Syria. And all of this is unmanageable and potentially antithetical to our interests as it already seems. We're less able to influence those outcomes and keep an eye on the threats we care about if we're getting out ourselves. What is, uh, what is the biggest danger, would you say? Is this a direct threat on an American ally like Israel, for example, or is it the inspiration of radicals to commit an atrocity like we saw in Paris or, or you know, driving into a crowd in Berlin or, or Strasbourg or any of these things, would you say? I do think the inspiration is, is part of it uh, because what made ISIS's rallying cry different in many ways from the rallying cries of al-Qaeda or al-Shabaab before it was this claim to a purported caliphate, this claim to have governance over a quasi-state. And you know, Americans, many at least, first became aware of ISIS, at least fully, with those just awful beheading videos of Western hostages that emerged. And ISIS certainly puts out plenty of videos with horrific graphic violence. But some of the videos that shed more insight into how they're attempting to recruit, they're not violent. Instead, they show this gathering. And they often quite deliberately show foreign fighters speaking different languages, walking around a, a marketplace, shopping for, for food, with, with the, the, the basic message being, we have uh, forged here a caliphate. And folks should come join it and they should bring their families, and they should be part of it. That, ISIS's messaging is in a sense non-falsifiable, because if they lose on the battlefield, then they switch their narrative to being one of laying in wait, or of martyrdom. But there is at least some link between them being able to inspire people with claims of a caliphate, and having some caliphate they can claim to govern. They have lost that ability to claim to govern very much. As that crops back, I think it inflames their ability to inspire, to recruit, and to radicalize. But I also worry about what plotting can happen from territorial safe haven apart from the inspiration. When you have space to experiment with bombs, with training fighters, and then especially if you can 
get them into Europe, as we saw happen when ISIS was at its peak, th that's, a, that's a real danger. You wrote uh, in the New York Times, you co-penned a piece in the New York Times, you said, we have yet to figure out how fully, uh, how to turn the corner from degrading groups like Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State to actually defeating them. Do you have any ideas on, on how we do make that turn? It, it takes investment beyond what we have come to think of as counterterrorism. We come to think of as counterterrorism the elimination of the bad guys, in a sense, whether that's by military force, our own detention of them, foreign countries' detention of them, their eventual prosecution, imprisonment, whatever the form is, that is a piece of counterterrorism. But sustainable counterterrorism takes more than that. It takes having partners who can do these sorts of things so that we don't need to put ourselves back into countries and do it ourselves. It also takes not allowing the sheer absence of governance that the civil war in Syria um, demonstrated and provided to groups that wanted a place to gather, to fight, to recruit. It's really hard, and I'm not sure Americans want to bite off the reconstruction of, of, of parts of Syria. But to abandon the project entirely is an invitation to say, There's, there is not governance in parts of this country. Therefore, the very thing that attracted ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and other extremists to Syria in the first place, that attraction is going to reemerge. That's the sort of thing that if you, if you don't follow through on that beyond the getting rid of the bad guys, you seem to set up the cycle that we've experienced in Iraq and Syria, where al-Qaeda in Iraq was down to a very small number of fighters, but then inflamed back into what became ISIS. One of the places where allies did play a huge role was Afghanistan, where we started. This is a NATO mission. NATO countries have contributed troops, mission support. Uh, but under this administration, allies have not really been a focus. And uh, I wonder if you can talk about would we be capable or are we capable of maintaining a, a coalition of the willing for the war on terror even uh, with this administration's stance and, and rhetoric, do you think? It seems to make it, make it quite a bit harder. You know, it's really a remarkable coalition that was assembled, uh, dozens and dozens of countries and, uh, and groups of countries uh, to fight ISIS. But as you say, Afghanistan has also been about more than just the United States. And we want it to be that way. We want burden sharing. We want other countries to feel invested in groups that pose a threat to them too, not just to us. But the transactional way in which the, the current leadership describes partnerships, um, it wouldn't be appealing to me if I were the partner. And it doesn't seem appealing to many countries uh, around the world. The idea that the United States wants to get into an ad hoc relationship of invest more here, we'll do this, but there won't be something sustainable beyond that, that makes it very hard to do something that this administration's counterterrorism strategy, in my view rightly, says it wants to continue doing. It says it wants to remain partner-centric, that it doesn't want huge numbers of U.S. service members with boots on the ground in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. And in, the alternative to that is empowering partners, but doing it in a way that those partners get better and better over time and remain engaged in the fight. How one squares that as an element of one's counterterrorism strategy with this very explicitly transactional approach to partnerships rather than the deeper approach to, to enduring ones or even alliances, I haven't seen that in two years at least. Your time with the White House was, was a very different kind of White House and, and operating procedure. But I wonder how much of a disconnect, if, if you can try to, to guess this, how much of a disconnect is there from a written 
you know, formulated national security uh, assessment and, and documents uh, to the political posturing that we may see on the news or on Twitter? I think there, there, there is a disconnect, and, and it began to, to crystallize, I think, when, when President Trump rolled out his um, national security strategy, not just his strategy on counterterrorism, but before that he put out a broader, overarching national security strategy. And as people began to read the document, it looked like a fairly traditional, probably, probably Republican-leaning, but fairly traditional-looking document. Then, as people are digesting it, the President gave a speech uh, rolling it out that did not sound traditional, nor did it sound much like the document itself. And I, I worried as the as this counterterrorism strategy came out that we'd see something of a disconnect there too, that the document to me looked like a fairly traditional, uh, civil servant-driven, counterterrorism professional-driven approach to dealing with terrorist threats, but that what we might see from the president wouldn't necessarily resemble that. And I think the abrupt nature of his uh, announcements about Syria, and then quickly thereafter, Afghanistan, they probably proved that to be true. Hmm. Uh, are there areas that you think we're not thinking about actively enough, even just as news consumers and citizens, but in this conversation, like, like we started the war on terror, it's such a nebulous term. We don't really know what's inclusive, what's not inclusive, uh, but do you see blind spots in our national conversation and, and where we're focusing? You know, one thing I, I'd like to see us talk more about is about us rather than about them. And we were headed in this direction for a while. I think Americans really began to cultivate a sense of resilience in the face of terrorist attacks or even attempted terrorist attacks. I mean, if you look at the reactions to some of the dreadful events, San Bernardino or the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, uh, in, in general, within the sort of mainstream of public, media, politicians, mm -hmm. there weren't calls for uh, some sort of dramatic overreaction. To those there was grieving, which there should be. There was an attempt to figure out what had gone wrong, which there should be. But there wasn't some of the calls we did here after 9-11 for real infringements on civil liberties, and in fact some policies after 9-11, like torture, that, that, that I, I think at least many of us think was were, were, were the wrong direction for our country to go in. What worries me is we've, we've gotten away from that conversation a little bit because, and here I'll put some blame on, on national leadership. Uh, you know, President Trump is somebody who, after the, the mayor of London suffered an attack, criticized the mayor of London for trying to reassure his people uh, and say, no, you, you should be essentially hyping the fear. Uh, I don't think that's right. I think it's the role of all of us not to hype the fear, and especially of our leadership, to point us in that right direction. And I'd love us to talk more about what I think is a, a growing national stoicism and resilience so that when these attacks do happen, as tragic as they are, we don't do what terrorist groups ultimately want, which is overreact ourselves, validate their narrative about us, and invest our resources in all sorts of ways that are not optimal for our interests. This is a little bit of a leading question, but for a long time in the literature and even in the conversation about counterterrorism for a while, there was this argument that we, as the quote-unquote West, should use our values and, sh and use our way of doing things to convince radicals and extremists and people who would fight against us that our way is a better way, that we empower people, we have constitutional liberalism. Uh, this, is a, this is a different way of thinking and a, an empowering way. 
is that still part of our strategy or, or our best strategy and the leading part? Are, are we accomplishing that with, with some of what's coming out of the White House right now? I certainly think it should be a part of our, of our strategy. I mean, values alone are not always what you need. Sometimes you need to actually eliminate threats in this world, and you need the intelligence to, to help you do so. But I do think values are part of it. And ultimately, the values, they're not just tactics. They're what we fight for, in a sense. And so to go about the, these sorts of um, counterterrorism campaigns in a way that's consistent with our view of the law, respect for human rights, I think that's important. Look, there's a reason that, that for example, Guantanamo Bay and the orange jumpsuits, they didn't just show up before. They still show up now as symbols in the propaganda materials of al-Qaeda, of ISIS, and other groups. And they're thrown back at the United States as uh, uh, suggesting that we're hypocritical, that we talk about values and we don't always live up to them. That's not just me saying that. President Bush has said those things became symbols. They became recruiting tools for terrorists. And that's why he, and this is him continuing, worked to close a facility that he had helped uh, open. So I do think getting those values back and maybe more at the forefront of how we go about these campaigns, I think that's right in and of itself, but I also think it's helpful to the campaigns. And you can add Abu Ghraib uh, onto that as well. I wonder, if is there a conflict now which is contributing to that? Is it the humanitarian crisis in Syria? Is that feeding extremism or Yemen? We haven't talked about Yemen at all, but does that factor in? Uh, you know, I, I, I think, I'm not sure how much yet terrorist groups have exactly decided to deploy those as, as recruitment and narrative tactics, but if one looks at just the, the horrific human suffering going on in, well, both the countries you mentioned, Syria and Yemen, but in particular Yemen, and one looks at the, the, the reluctance we seem to have to criticize the Saudis for how they're continuing to wage that campaign, uh, it, it does seem to, to, to fall short of, of, of our values. Hmm. I do want to open it up uh, to questions. If you have questions, uh, feel free to come up to the microphone if we didn't cover something as fully as you'd like. I'd like to ask a question while we give you time to come up. Um, what do you expect from the State of the Union tonight? Do you think uh, this will even register, or do you think it may be couched in a, in a different way? This is something I can easily be proven wrong on, so why not give it a try? So we, we know that Secretary Pompeo indicated last week that the president would be making some sort of significant announcement regarding ISIS, and, and, and Secretary Pompeo said he, he thought it would be coming in the State of the Union. There's also uh, tomorrow President Trump will be addressing the periodic counter-ISIS ministerial which is being hosted in, in Washington uh, this meeting, and we'll presumably be speaking about ISIS exclusively at, at, at that gathering. So whether we hear it tonight or hear it tomorrow, uh, what I worry about, I guess, is hearing about uh, a doubling down on this idea that the group is defeated. I, I think our service members, our intel professionals, our diplomats, our law enforcement folks, they deserve to take great pride in a ton of progress. But the word defeated strikes me as a word inconsistent with their own assessments. And to hear the president, uh, in a sense, remain at odds with the assessments of his own intel agencies on this issue, but also on others, that, that would really concern me. Hmm. We'll start with a question. Yeah, please. Okay, uh, please tell me, what should we be doing with our immigration policy in regards to counterterrorism? 
Let me start with what we shouldn't be doing, because in some ways it's, it's, it's easier to answer that. Uh, folks may remember that the Justice Department and Homeland Security Department put out a report. It was put out in January of 2018. It had been called for by the executive order in 2017, the very same executive order that instituted version one of the travel ban. And the conclusion that this report purported to reach was that 73% of acts of terrorism uh, or those committing acts of terrorism on U.S. soil were, were foreign. And this report strikes me as the worst example of talking about terrorism and immigration in the same breath. And you, I would encourage you, if, if you're interested more on this, to, to look at a, uh, an op-ed that, that I wrote in the Washington Post with um, uh, Nick Rasmussen, who served as director of the National Counterterrorism Center, trying to tease out at least a few of the real defects in how this report manipulated statistics about terrorism, playing up foreignness, including in these numbers, just to give you one extreme example, people whom the United States brought from foreign soil via extradition to U.S. soil in custody for purposes of prosecuting them here and counting them as foreigners who committed terrorism acts on U.S. soil. Those are the sorts of distortions of numbers that even the Justice Department a few months ago acknowledged could be better in, a, in future reports. They're not going to retract this one, they said, but they indicated they could do better. And I, I applaud them for that. I think they could do a lot better. So in some ways, the best thing to do about terrorism and immigration is keep them apart. We, we have extremely important but also extremely rigorous vetting of people coming to the United States in various forms, whether they're traveling, seeking visas for longer stays. Every so often, in fact, on an ongoing basis, those vetting policies get reevaluated by the intelligence professionals who operate them. They were strengthened a number of times when I was in government. I think they sh should be getting reevaluated and, if necessary, strengthened now. I don't know if they are. But that shouldn't be driving things like the travel ban, which, in my view, is utterly non-responsive to the terrorist threats we actually face. Thank you. Next question, yeah. Given the disparate threats we're seeing from East Africa, North Africa, and West Africa, can you just talk about the threats emanating from Africa, and should the U.S. be doing more? Yeah, so there's, uh, unfortunately, a motley assortment of, of terrorist groups operating out of, out of Africa. Maybe I'll begin in, in North Africa. A at one point, ISIS's um, most worrisome incarnation outside of Iraq and, and Syria to those of us in government was ISIS Libya, which has been connected to the Berlin um, uh, Christmas market attack that you mentioned earlier, and which at one point had the territorial control over the coastal city of Sirte, Libya, essentially at the same level ISIS had territorial control in Iraq and Syria. There are pictures, you can find them online, of ISIS parades with ISIS flags down the main streets of, of Sirte. That's the level of control. Now. That control was dislodged by a sustained campaign in the last months of the Obama administration using U.S. air power and Libyan Mizratan forces on the ground. And there's been action since then to try to deal with the, the reemergence of ISIS Libya. It's still there, although I think dislodging it from a, a, a coastal city of, of strategic significance was, was a big deal. That's in the north. You still have terrorist groups operating in East Africa, not just al-Shabaab, which has had a presence for a while, but also ISIS flaring up there. And then you have in West Africa, uh, ISIS West Africa, in other words, ISIS's West African affiliate, and Boko Haram, which they have split and merged and split and merged in some complicated ways over the years. 
on the one hand, it, it, it seems too ambitious to say, well, let's handle that all, right? Certainly we don't want U.S. forces on the ground in huge numbers in all those parts of Africa uh, dealing with these threats. The other extreme strikes me as unacceptable too because these are groups that have at times been able to mount attacks that have taken the lives of Westerners, even Americans. And so th the challenge of counterterrorism is calibrating the tools in our toolkit to match, one, the resources we have, and two, the directness of the threat posed to us. And in some parts, that involves building up local partners. Sometimes that involves taking action ourselves, the way we did in, in, in Libya when the, the, the threat of ISIS, Libya, and CERT was too great not to, at least that's what a lot of us thought in government. And sometimes things in between, like sharing intelligence or, or getting better equipment for partners. But that's something that really needs to be threat-driven and intelligence-driven, and I hope that's still occurring. Thank you. Next question, please. I don't hear any taking responsibility for this as, as an American for what's going on over there. And to me, most of what's going on over there is blowback from our behavior. I mean, Osama bin Laden himself said the Terry Towers was for us standing with Israel for 70 years to destroy the Palestinian civilization and rob them of all their land and setting up bases in Arab uh, countries. And our response after 9-11 was to blow up Afghanistan and Iraq, and that's where all the terrorists are coming from, terrorists. Those are people that are fighting for their lives. We need to look at what we've done and figure out some other way than just killing them. You can't kill them all. The more you kill, the more you create. I just want a response. Thank you. So, so a couple of thoughts on that. Um, at first, it, it probably won't surprise you. I, I don't regard bin Laden mounting attacks against Americans uh, on U.S. soil, taking thousands of lives here, as him fighting for, for, his, for his life. But at the same time, I take seriously your point that bin Laden and others have invoked U.S. presences abroad as at least justification, in part, for, for what they do. And that, I think, is something that Americans have had to contend with. And I think it's part of the reason that a lot of us think that having large presences on the ground has various uh, drawbacks to it, not just putting our men and women at, at risk, but also potentially leading to folks reacting to that. So I, I think there's been a lesson learned about trying to do counterterrorism, which I do think is still necessary to do because there are people who unfortunately want to kill and maim Americans, but do it in a way that minimizes the blowback and minimizes the chance that, that it will, in fact, create new enemies. And also part of that is, a, is doing our best to abide by human rights as we do it, abide by the law as we do it, and avoid the sorts of civilian casualties. People sometimes say, you know, how do you think of civilian casualties fits into counterterrorism? Counterterrorism is all about avoiding civilian casualties. That's what it is in the first place. That's what terrorist acts are, the deliberate killing of civilians. Those of us who worked on counterterrorism felt it was critical to try to avoid civilian casualties in the other direction too. There was a report that was declassified in part yesterday by the uh, Defense Department in which uh, Secretary Mattis, I gather before he left, asked his military, come back to me with how we can do better at avoiding civilian casualties in our own efforts. On the one hand, I'm glad to see people are still focused on that. On the other hand, there was an executive order that President Obama issued years ago urging better practices and better assessments on that front. And I think it's critical to our integrity that we continue to do better on that. Hmm. Next question. Okay, thank, thank you for coming and speaking here. I really appreciate it. 
Um, the question I had is <clears throat> whether it's possible to have a real cost-benefit analysis of what we're doing in combating terrorism. Um, you had talked about the original going after the bad guys and not factoring in the cost of reconstruction to avoid the bad guys returning or getting bigger than they were when we went in. How realistic is it within government and a conversation more broadly to make decisions based on, on that cost-benefit? The, the cost of the tool of going in and getting the bad guy is different and the tool is different than the tool to reconstruct and the cost of that tool. Who's, who's looking at that total cost and making that decision? Is that, is that happening internally and it's just not something that can be discussed externally because of the politics of it or is it a conversation that's not happening? My honest answer is right now, I have no greater insight in some ways than anyone else as to what's happening inside. But I will say it's a conversation that was happening when I was inside. Let me go back to the example of um, CERT, uh, the, the city in Libya I mentioned earlier. There was this growing realization that, that having ISIS in control of a coastal city right on the Mediterranean was, was, was not an acceptable state of affairs for our own security. But the question became not how do we dislodge a terrorist group from a, from a city, but what's going to happen next? And before the campaign began, there was a deliberate effort to ensure that there would be funding sources, not just the U.S. funding, but we had European partners bought in for funding reconstruction, a sense of what were these mis misrotten forces who were going into essentially a neighboring city with which they had had rivalries over the years. Were they just going to try and stay? Turned out the answer was no. Um, were they going to remain allied? Was this a force allied to the new, the GNA, the new national Libyan government that a lot of countries around the world had worked hard through a UN process to build? Or would this undermine that process with the thought being that that process was critical to countrywide stability and we made sure we did it in a way that was in sync with the newly empowered prime minister? That was, that was built in from the beginning, bef before the bombs fell, so to speak, that there would be a plan. How that plan has been executed is something I no, I no longer get the insight into. But I agree that that's not a question to ask after. It's a question to ask at the beginning. Thank you. Apparently, we're, we are really good at beating ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, et cetera, on the battlefield and destroying them on the battlefield. How do we beat them in the ideological world Thank you. It's, it's a good question, and, and I, I don't think those two are totally disconnected. And this goes back to the point I uh, tried to make earlier about ISIS's rallying cry being in part, we have built something here. We have won battles on the battlefield. We have constructed a purported caliphate, and that's, that gives us a credibility. It gives something that you should either come join or something worth fighting for, even dying for, wherever you are, Europe, the United States, wherever it might be. So there is, there is some connection between battlefield setbacks or gains and the ability to at least somewhat credibly put forward a, a, an ideology and a radicalization narrative that, that gets traction. Um, but I think ultimately part of how we make ourselves appealing is by actually living up to our values. That goes back to the, the good question you asked earlier about whether values should be part of how we approach counterterrorism. And I think they're yes, A, because they're just our values, but B, 
it, it's not clear that, that anybody's going to get an unfiltered perception of the United States if they're well down the radicalization process. But we're also not just competing for somebody well down the radicalization process. We're competing for a vision of America that is compelling to people uh, abroad the way it was compelling to at least some people abroad during the Cold War and in various other eras. Uh, we recognized in the U.S. government that we were not doing great at this. There had been something called the Counterterrorism Strategic Communications Center at the State Department that was, uh, at its worst at least, tweeting back at terrorists. And it, it was not a good strategy. It wasn't working. We overhauled it. We built it into the Global Engagement Center with the idea being people don't want to hear the U.S. government's voice. They want to hear their credible local voices. And the best we can do is amplify them and create space for them. We brought in people from um, who were familiar with how to leverage technology and do better on this. Unfortunately, this, the, the leadership was largely run out under the new administration, and the funding that we'd worked hard to secure was declined by the new administration, and eventually some of it was begrudgingly accepted. I think that strategy of not make us the mouthpiece for what's wrong with ISIS, but amplify credible narratives of those with some greater credibility, I think that's the right basic approach. Next question. Okay, uh, just uh, to talk a little bit about sort of the, the overall strategic geopolitical framework we see ourselves in. Uh, the U.S., as long as I can remember, has a, uh, a knee-jerk policy of rapid, strong military intervention that then turns to uh, trying to win the hearts and minds, and then the public becomes tired of paying for it, and we pull out. The, the net in, uh, input of that is, are we leaving the battlefield for the battlefield to come to us? Uh, the, the fact that we would fight them there was one of the major motivating factors. And also the, the notion that uh, when you're fighting in somebody else's country, human intelligence is important. And with our repeated reputation of pulling out and leaving our friends and allies to hang out and be persecuted is hurting us. What's your view of the better way to do this and still counter terrorism? It's an interesting question about what's really the, the demand on this, this cycle, because for better or for worse, and people have varying views, I actually don't see public fatigue as the reason that we are right now pulling ourselves out of, of Syria and dramatically reducing our, our presence in Afghanistan. Th that, that's something that seems to have largely been President Trump's uh, self-initiated self idea. We heard from General Votel today, he wasn't even aware that the president was going to make this announcement until he heard it publicly. So people may think that's a good thing or a bad thing that America's longest war in Afghanistan hasn't elicited a public uh, push to get out. But it actually doesn't seem driven by the public here. It seems driven by, uh, by a president. Now, in fairness to the president, he did campaign saying he wanted to get us out. But the very reaction of his own party on the Hill, largely to criticize these decisions, suggests that getting out in this way, with this abruptness and with this abandonment of, uh, of, of partners who are saying they feel abandoned, I, I think for good reason, um, the very criticism suggests that 
it's more originated from him than, than, than from necessarily a public sentiment. I do think that cycle is, is one that, that ends up forcing us ultimately to invest more uh, than the investment that might be required to do something that's long and hard and costly, but at least has a steadfast way of trying to shrink and shrink the problem. If, it, it, it seems to me setting up a dangerous cycle of the get out, say you delivered on a progress promise of getting out, and then there's a flare up, boy, is it going to take a huge investment to get back in and build a coalition around it and try to make those same partners or even other partners trust us again. Next question, please. So you have uh, referenced a clash of values with some of our allies. Um, so I want to uh, bridge into my question a little bit with, um, there are many people who believe that we wouldn't even be in Afghanistan today if it wasn't for Saudi Arabia pouring millions of dollars into schools which teach a specific doctrine which came from Saudi Arabia and is supported by um, generations of the family that still rules Saudi Arabia, uh, the Saudi Wahhabi doctrine of Islam, um, which, which spawned much of the conflict in Afghanistan today. So my, I guess my question is, having seen Saudi Arabia possibly exercise what would be the equivalent of an ISIL tactic, killing somebody speaking out against them, how can you convince me being an insider in the government that we should be allied with Saudi Arabia. What is the benefit having that insider knowledge when you were at the table where these discussions were, were taking place about the pros and cons of Saudi Arabia? What's the pro side of Saudi Arabia um, being, and the United States being in a partnership at this point? Thank you. Yeah, and I'm not sure I'm going to work too hard to, to convince you that, that we should uh, overlook what strikes me as the just outrageous, horrific killing uh, of, of, a, of a journalist, uh, of any uh, civilian, but of, of, of a journalist in, in apparent retaliation for his, his speech. So uh, that strikes me as just uh, unacceptable. It's beyond the pale, and it's something that our leadership should have been far clearer, far quicker in denouncing in unambiguous terms, and, and I have written this publicly, imposing sectoral sanctions to exert a real cost. Now. That, that doesn't fully answer your question, though, because you also asked, well, are there benefits to partnerships, even with, whether it's Saudi Arabia or other countries, countries that at times I do think are well worth denouncing when they do something horrific. What's interesting about counterterrorism relationships, or really more broadly intelligence relationships, is there is at least a, a layer of them that is somewhat insulated f f from politics or even from disputes of the moment, because I wouldn't call denouncing Khashoggi's murder politics. I would just call that the right thing to do. Um, but there's a layer that keeps talking between these countries. And in my view, you, you do want that layer to keep talking, because there are people in intelligence services around the world who see things that are threats to Americans, whether at home or abroad. And to have them not forget our number every time we, we denounce them, even if we need to denounce them, or vice versa. That strikes me as, as, as at least continuing to try some cooperation to keep, whether our own civilians or other civilians, or others, frankly, diplomats, military service members, safe. So there's that, that, that bottom level of keeping, the, keeping the, 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 the channel open that I think is worthwhile, that I saw insulated from even the big ups and downs uh, of policy, and that I frankly think could have stayed insulated here, even if we'd done 
what in my view would have been the right thing and say that this was just unacceptable. A quick follow-up, is there a calculus that this is the least bad option for, <laughs> for, for having a, a quote-unquote ally or just uh, 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 interlocutor in the region? Because it seems like there are a number of negatives to the Saudi relationship, uh, but is it just the case that there is nobody else or we don't want to deal with anybody else or... I'm not, I'm not sure it has to be exactly the, the status quo. I mean, the, 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 the previous administration certainly didn't lean into the Saudi relationship as fully as the Trump administration had. They didn't cut it off. Uh, and of course, there were benefits to that. We were able to transfer a number of individuals from Guantanamo Bay to Saudi Arabia, which we were appreciative for because we don't think there should be some of the detainees still at, at Guantanamo who are cleared for transfer, just to give one example. Mm -hmm. but. I, you didn't see that same, you didn't see pictures of, of President Obama around a glowing orb, uh, and, and you didn't see the full leaning into the relationship. And I think when there are concerns with, with countries, and I think the way this, this campaign is being waged in, in Yemen and the devastation it's causing to, that rises above the level of concerns when you see that, that strikes me as a chance to figure out what that right calibration is. I don't see much calibration going on here. I instead see people like Secretary Pompeo saying, the world's a messy and tough place, and we're just going to stick with these guys. That strikes me as relatively unnuanced mm. and, and, and not a useful foreign policy. It actually diminishes our own leverage. If we're just in it no matter what, it doesn't give us a chance to try to at least tug on the things that we want done differently. Mm. If I disappear tomorrow, remember I asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is Cleveland. You're, you're all right. You're all right. Next question, please. Uh, thank you so much for hosting this today. Um, we've spoken a lot on uh, the particular regions of uh, the Middle East as well as uh, North Africa. I was wondering if you could fill myself in as well as the rest of the crowd uh, regarding the regions of um, specifically the Philippines as well as the Caucasus, uh, the certain parameters that these authorities have taken to prevent the spread of Wahhabism and uh, called Muslim extremism. Uh, to to further that spread and to further the 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 extent of um, the conflict you could call it within the Philippines specifically and just uh, the the actions of certain leaders like uh, Ramzan Kadyrov within Chechnya, um, just to kind of give us an update, if you will, on that. Yeah, you ask enough, about enough regions of the globe, you get enough gloomy mentions of other terrorist groups or at least affiliates out there. Um, <laughs> It's trying not to, to, to get too gloomy. Uh, but it, it's true. I, the, the areas we've touched on, while I think they're probably the ones with the most direct threats to Americans, whether Americans here or Americans who travel to those regions, they're not the only ones with their terrorist groups. Philippines is particularly complicated because you have this group called the Abai Sayaf group. You have ISIS and al-Qaeda. Um, in a sense, competing there. And terrorist groups competing is a really dangerous thing because often the way they compete, and by compete, I mean compete for um, resources, compete for recruits, is to try to outdo each other with their attacks. And there has long been a concern that that's the dynamic that will actually escalate um, in the Philippines. We obviously have a, a, a leader in the, in, the, in the Philippines not known for great respect for human rights, which adds the difficulty of trying to empower a local leadership to deal with these sorts of problems. There is a similar difficulty of dealing with um, ISIS in the Caucasus because um, Russian, the Russian approach to, to counterterrorism, or what they claim is counterterrorism, is particularly heavy-handed. And that was part of the challenge with, 
with seeing them get more active in, in Syria uh, was the, the, they do not approach these things with, with the precision and care that, um, that, that the United States at least tries to. Uh, the, the Caucasus was one of the eight early global branches that ISIS recognized, along with Libya and the Sinai and some other places. Um, and largely, it's not one that we as Americans have heard much about. But in those parts of the region, of the world, you have not just this, this simmering threat of terrorist groups or even multiple ones potentially as each other's rivals, but you have countries that I don't think we feel, I don't think we should feel, totally comfortable empowering in the ways we might empower the French to do their counterterrorism activities in Mali, for example, where we think they will generally think about the law of armed conflict and respect for human rights in roughly the way we would if we were operating. Do you know, do we still have boots on the ground in the Philippines? I know in the early aughts, we had some counterterrorism uh, operations against Abu Sayyaf and some of the other groups, but uh, do you know, is that still taking place? Or? My recollection is that is that under President Trump, we may have actually in increased slightly mm -hmm. the, 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 that presence, but I'm not exactly sure whether those folks are actually doing counterterrorism direct missions. In other words, are they out trying to encounter and engage with the, with the enemy, or are they doing more training, advising, assisting? I'm not sure. Yeah. Next question, please. Uh, yes. First, I want to thank you for sharing tonight. It's been a pleasure uh, to hear you speak. Um, my question is really, being in the financial industry and having obligations to look for money laundering and terrorist financing and then report that on up, how do you see that as being a good partnership and what do you think uh, the financial industry could be doing to help uh, the government and the rest of the nation uh, combat uh, terrorism? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think there's been some pretty impressive strides made on this in, in, in the years since 9-11. This know your customer regime has recognized, in a sense, that the banks are on the front line of seeing transactions take place. And to force, I think is a fair word, on them a regulatory regime that requires, that puts some responsibility on them for understanding who's making at least money of a certain amount flow through that system. Um, not only does that strike me as having helped, it hasn't cut off the flow of terrorist finances, they certainly are still able to find ways to move money, but I think it's helped. If anything, I actually think it's, it was something of an early model because it was an instance in which the private sector, in the form of banks, was on the front lines of this challenge. We have seen that crop up more and more, and here I'm thinking in particular about online recruitment, which uh, was not new with ISIS, but ISIS certainly revolutionized and uh, and succeeded with more than other groups. And as, as we think about how the government should orient itself with respect to tech companies that run social media sites, file upload sites, as it thinks about how to deal with others who remain private and yet on the front lines of aspects of national security challenges, I actually think that was an early useful model that we have a lot of lessons to learn from. Thank you. Last question, please. Uh, yeah, we were just talking about banking. Uh, and financing, and in the global war on terrorism, uh, we've seen uh, military force, diplomatic force, uh, but has anyone identified the bankers who are supporting the terrorists? Is there uh, the financial end of it, in other words, the struggle to cut off the pipeline and starve the terrorists, at least to come to the table to negotiate? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and the answer is, is absolutely. Uh, there there are, are folks who are every so often designated 
under various designation regimes. Um, and some of the designations are for their role in the financing of terrorism. There are designations for all sorts of other roles in, in terrorism, too. But um, you do see designations that the U.S. government says quite explicitly are based on uh, financing of, of terrorism. And being designated um, is a particular harm to those who are in financing, because part of the consequences of designation is being cut off from certain parts of the U.S. and then, in a sense, uh, vicariously, <laughs> being cut off from the global um, banking system and, and ability to move money. So that has been a, a tool that I think the Treasury Department has, has em employed um, effectively. It's tried to keep up with a very evolving landscape in what, what the groups are, where they're getting their funding, what that means for designation authorities and what it means for particular targets of, of designation. Um, but it is part of the fight because even though in some ways terrorism can be done cheaply, it can be done better and worse with money behind it. And that makes cutting off the money flow worthwhile. We've covered a lot of ground tonight, but hopefully we gave you something to think about, especially ahead of the State of the Union. So as you're watching from home or if you stick around, maybe uh, it'll give you something to think about. Thank you so much to Josh. Thank you uh, all for coming. Appreciate it.